Hello, everybody, and welcome to Two Goals. I'm Maria Laura. And I'm Katia. And we're happy to record another conversation with our Leadership Woman Football Series today. And even though this should not be a surprise, but it is still not the rule in the football industry, we're accompanied by a male colleague who decided to give inclusive professional mentorship a shot. Jose Luis Campos, born in Spain and currently living in the United States, is a professional in public relations and publicity with postgraduate studies in sports management and with a career focus on different roles in marketing. Nowadays, he's working as program developer manager for the Portland chapter of Street Soccer USA, and he will be sharing his professional achievements, his thoughts on exclusive leadership, and his insights on marketing for men and women's football. Jose Luis, welcome to Two Goals. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Well, Jose Luis, I'm always happy to start our conversation with a were with your own words in this case. So I will open quote and start by saying, you cannot be a good leader without treating everything as equals and understanding both differences and current inequalities amongst our society. I think that's something that applies in every level, in every one of our environments. It depends, I mean, it doesn't depend in, of a country. This is like crucial and it is actual. I mean, from, from the current world right now. So. This is something that you use to describe the importance of taking part in the mentoring program of leadership women football. Is there something really specific, like an anecdote, a memory from your past on what you decided to lead in football? Um, yeah, absolutely. When I, when I was young, when I was little, I, I knew I wanted to be a boss. And, you know, when people ask you, what, what do you want to do when you get older? Or you want to, want to work in football? I mean, answer number one, I wanted to be a professional football player, but I realized fairly soon that it's not going to happen. And so answer number two, I wanted to be a boss. I wanted to lead. And that's because my, my mother, my mom, uh, she's, a, she's a manager and I saw her all my life running on her team, her company, and it's something that always inspired me. So that was my first option when I was like literally 10, 12 years old. Like I knew I was not going to make it to pro. So I want to be a boss. I don't know where or doing what, but definitely want to be bossing people around. And then it was more like 2015 when I make a huge career change and decide to study an MBA. So it was my, in my current company before, I didn't know if I stayed there, I would have the chance to become, to get a bigger role. So I thought through education, I could, you know, get better, um, get smarter meet more people, more connections, and at the same time, take a, a leadership position. Um, that's why I highly recommend education for people who want to get that. Please, please do not leave until you form yourself and feel comfortable enough to share what you're doing and what you know. We also recommend that, but I want to highlight what you said. Uh, that's, it is in my head right now. And in the, in the newer way, we talk about leadership courses and everything. Being a, a, in your case a boy saying I want to be a boss, it's I mean it's amazing, and we we hope that a lot of kids nowadays can can say that, and uh, for sure we will have a lot of leaders in the future. But let's go to your educational pathway, and you are a sports management MBA graduate from the University of Oregon and bachelor graduate of public relations and publicity from the University of Wales. We have a tendency to see a good availability of educational possibilities focusing in sports and now more than ever. So 
what do you value in specializing in sports focused degrees? Shall all future talents interested in working in football study more specifically case studies of the sport? I will do my best to not give yes or no answers or ambiguous answers, but this is going to be one of the ones. Uh, yes, absolutely, yes and no. So if you can study in the best of the best business program or marketing program, go for it, whether it's sports related or not. Because at the end of the day, when you're applying for a job, um, yes, having a sports business, sports marketing background helps, but also helps if you come from a very prestigious and very good institution. So the, my role is kind of like 90% sports business, it's 90% business, 10% sport. So if you come from a really strong business program, it doesn't matter if it's not sports related. Um, saying that, if you have, you're not gonna go to a top top, but it's still a good one. I'm not gonna put myself like Stanford in the University of Oregon. It's a great university, but it's not Harvard. Um, if you're not gonna go Harvard, you're gonna go to a good, but not top, may as well use a sports business one, especially if it's a, a good sports business education. And when I did my research of best sports business education, University of Oregon among others was there. And that's why I decided to pursue that MBA specifically. But again, if you can, you have the chance to study somewhere else, you will be fine. You don't have to study sports business to work in sports business. You don't have to study sports marketing to work in sports marketing. You study marketing and you study business, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, having a specific education will give you more knowledge of case studies, more connections in the industry. So it gives you that 10% extra, but some people don't need that 10% push. Some people are just fine with an education somewhere else and doing their own networking and they're reaching out to professionals and talking to them. And at the end of the day, creating your pathway without necessarily through a sports business education. So yes and no, that's what I'm Yeah, I mean, I agree with your answer because for example, in I mean, and I will talk about the Colombian experience. I think there is a huge gap between business studies and business focus in sports studies. And right now we need that to understand the, the contribution of sports as an industry for a country like mine. But at the same time, I completely agree. I mean, you can always start doing a different path. I think we need to start changing the, the discourse about you need to follow these exact steps to get to to be successful. And that's definitely not the case. I mean, you mentioned something. I mean, we're not always we are, we don't always have the chance to get to the top university i mean there are many reasons why maybe you won't go there but there are other ways to kind of like turn around i mean turn around your chances and turn around your luck and get there so i like this yes or no answers let's let's keep going into <laughs> yeah you took ifi like i don't want to discourage people who want to study sports business i want to encourage people who are not studying sports business who are still interested in working in a sport to feel free to continue their career without necessarily studying something sports related. They will be fine. Amazing, Jose. That's what we're looking. I mean, really great advices for, for us, as Katia and me, but also for all of our audiences. And coming back to these things that mark your career and, and, uh, and not also your career, your personal background and, and personal, um, the person who are right now. Tell us a bit about that experience that you had uh, in an agency based in London, playing PR. I mean, working overseas is always something challenging. Could you please tell us what did you learn from this? And also, what did you learn from the working place experiences in London? Well, first, I, I came to England at the age of 18. 
to work. So what I did basically every summer during my college degree, I went to England to work in the hospitality business. Three months in England because they have a higher salary like Spain. It makes me give me enough money to save for pretty much the whole year in Spain. So every summer, go to England, work, save money, go back to college in Spain. So when I was 22 and I graduated from college, I knew I had to go to England. We're talking about 2010 in the middle of the 2008 economic crisis. Spain had a huge unemployment rate back then. England was fine. My English was already decent. I don't want to say good, but decent. So I knew my, my best chance to get a good job out of college was in England. So what in England? Let's go to the big city. Let's go to London. And what I learned the most in London is adapt myself to other people and culture. I come from South Spain, which even though it's two hours away from Africa, is super white and not diverse at all. Everybody looks the same, literally. And I love it. I love my home. I love my friends in there. I love my family. And I have everybody there. And I love it. And every time, every chance I have, I come back. But at the same time, everybody, even though we're all different, we all think different because we all have the same culture and background. We tend to think up to a certain point similarly. And then you go to London, a 12 million people city population with 50% local, 50% from all over the world, literally all over the world. So now the conversations that you have at work in a bar or anywhere else, they're not about the same things that I would talk with my people at home. And at the same time, people come with completely different opinion that sometimes I'm like, oh, I would never do that. But it's good to hear. It's good to hear you think that way. It's good to have that point of view. So that was the best thing I would take from, from London. And since then, I've never stopped moving. I went to the United States, I briefly go to China and Nigeria, because at some point I want to know why people in Africa does sports this way and why people in China does sports this way and how can we nothing is perfect I would say Spain is, does football very well we have really good professional leagues and national teams but we're not perfect and the U.S. have things that they do better in Spain and Spain has things that do better in the U.S. how can I understand in both trying to do get the best out of both of them and see if I can come up with something that you know improve the people that I work with or support with the best of everything. You know, having a little bit of peace of all over the world and put it together where I am. What great thoughts you share because uh, when you were talking I was thinking for myself something that we, we've been listening here from our guests too um, but every guest is a particular case. In, in your case when you, you go somewhere in your case it was London you, you went to start in a new job position you usually we we ask our guests what they learn from the position they, they perform. But actually, we tend to learn more of the new culture that, are, that is around us. In, in London, in your case, it was not only one culture, but a lot of them. And you said one word that is so crucial for everything and makes us learn and develop, develop even more, that is adaptability. You need to adapt. The others, they don't need to adapt to you. You need, you need to adapt where, wherever you go and to fill in the culture, wherever it, it is. And in, in London, I, you have the English culture, but I mean, it's so vast. So it's, it's a very uh, um, multicultural place. But again, you, we, we asked you about the job position. Here, we, we're going to another one. You performed as a brand marketing manager and academy coach at Global Premier Soccer. In, in this case, it's not in England, but uh, in the USA, in Massachusetts, one of the largest football academies in the US and official partner of Bayern Munich. 
Can you share with us what were your biggest accomplishments in this job? Um, I would say survive. Uh, uh, it's just because at the end of the day, Google Commerce Soccer wasn't the best employer and now they disappear because they have had some legal issues. And I saw that when I was there. And at the end of the day, it's good to go to a place and understand like the world can be better and things can be run differently. Uh, one of the reasons why I left Global Commerce Soccer to study sports management, like this should be run differently it doesn't matter how successful you are and how, how large as a company are you if you don't treat your your employers as you should um, you're not you're not a good company to work for but in terms of like marketing um accomplishment i would say transferring from the global from soccer before I have a, a relationship with as roma and now i was part of the transfer into relationship with Bayern munich and that was important because in the U.S. it's a tendency of partner with some strong team in either Europe or South America. You to improve your methodology, your sessions, things that we can provide in the United States might not be there yet. That's South America and Europe have obviously been running soccer sessions forever or football sessions for a while. So there's a tendency of partnering with them also for branding purposes, putting a logo, a Bayern Munich logo next to yours, give you some brand recognition. Um, but at the same time, there are teams who are more involved and teams are less involved. Roma was not involved at all. They were happy to share coaching sessions and some methodology and some training through Zoom and things like that. But they were not involved. Bayer de Munich just opened uh, an office in New York and they obviously had a clear path and plan to monetize the United States, to get more fans, to sell more jerseys, to, to get more sponsors. So having a partnership with a youth academy was a good movement for them and having strong logo like Bayern Munich was a strong movement for us. So finding a club that wants to use us as much as we want to use them, it was equally, it was important for us instead of just using a club just for the fact of using a logo and hey, we have a partnership with Roma, blah, 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 which is marketing, but at the end of the day, you're selling nothing because it is nothing. Now, when you partner with Bayern Munich, now you do have a partnership. And that is important, being able to sell to your clients, in this case, the players. If the United States, we had a pay-to-play system. So players pay back then in Massachusetts up to $3,000 a year to play for the academy. So we're talking about a lot of money. So if you want to have a $3,000 customer, you need to provide something. And you also provide a good coach and a good methodology and a good academy system where the player will develop and potentially make it to college. But if you want to bring the buyer to Munich, you bring in something valuable. You bring, you're adding value to your brand, which with Roma, it was just a logo. And that was the reasoning, and that was the why, from the marketing perspective, we switched from Roma to Bayer Munich. That is incredible. And there is something that I will take from what you just mentioned, which is like not taking something as a failure. I mean, you understood that you needed to go and study more or study something really specific. And all those reasons that you then mentioned about sw swapping from AS Roma to Bayern Munich, I mean, they were based on your, on your need and your understanding that you weren't perfect, that you needed to strive more to get to, to be the best professional possible for your company. And moving into these more experiences that you have, several years working in diverse marketing-related roles and consulting for companies such as AMIC, Sports, Lane United FC, Tank Football Academy, and Flying Angels, which are like located all over the world from Asia to the United States. Could you please tell us a bit about what is key to outperform working in marketing today? And if you can compare this to women's football, 
What do you think right now clubs are missing to be successful in their marketing departments? To be successful in sports marketing, for me, uh, it's always worked very well understanding what makes sports marketing different than just regular marketing. You know what we're talking about, that 10% that makes a difference for me. Um, one of the biggest things will be loyalty. Um, I'm a Real Betis fan because I'm from Sevilla. So Sevilla has Sevilla and Betis. I'm a Real Betis fan and my rivals are very successful. They win a lot of Europa Leagues and they give me a headache constantly. My team gives me one good year every time. Literally, this year we qualified for Europe, so I'm very happy and smiling right now, but normally it's a pain. Normally it's a suffer. doesn't matter. I will always be loyal to my team. I will always be a Betis fan, regardless of how they treated me, quote unquote, treat me in terms of like success and running the club. That would never happen in any other brand in the world. If my computer stopped working after six months, I'm not going to buy that computer brand again. If my car stopped working after a year, I'll have to take it to the mechanic all the time. I'm not going to buy that car ever again. So in, so in football, we have that loyalty. I'm a Betis fan. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm still going to buy the jersey the next year. Okay, so that comes with something. So the advantages of it is like you're not going to lose your customers, which is probably in marketing in general, your biggest fear because getting new customers is a lot more expensive than retaining one. But at the same time, those people are heavily involved in the club. Like putting the same for now about the Superliga, pretty much the ones who stopped the Superliga were their own fans of the team in the Superliga because they are so involved in the club. They have dedicated so many hours and money to that brand, to that club, that at the end of the day, they want to be part of it. So you need to treat them as part of your company, even though they are a customer, even more than anybody else. So understanding that, for example, you do a campaign to gain new customers in computers, you can do 30% off, you can do it this week, you know, huge sales, flash sales, or you want to do that in the club. If I'm a season ticket holder for 20 years, and now you're telling me that if for new season ticket holder 50% off, wait, wait a minute, I've been paying full price for 20 years. And now you're not going to give me 50% off and you're going to give it to the new people. That doesn't work that way in sport. In sport, because how, for how long I've been a fan, for how long I've been involved with this club, for how long I have give you my loyalty and, and money. So that loyalty and understanding that the customer is very, very specific for good or bad um, is what will make you more successful in that sports marketing industry. And then in terms of like a woman's sport, what will make women's sports marketing more successful for them? For me, it's understanding that you do have a different target than men's sport. And one of the things that sometimes in women's sports we get to make a mistake is compare everything apples to apples. And nothing is apples to apples. It's different. You're playing with the same ball in the same field and the same sport, absolutely. But it's not the same because at the end of the day, we're all different. So you try to target the same customer. So you try to sell the same product at the end of the day. And when I mean I sell the product, not necessarily the export, the experience. At the end of the day, I consider it, I consider football part of entertainment business. Like on a Friday night, some people may go to watch a game, some people may go to watch cinema, some people may stay home and watch Netflix. So your competitor is not necessarily for Betis, it's not necessarily Sevilla. For Madrid, it's not necessarily Atletico Madrid. It's everybody else in the entertainment business. So understanding that it's a different product for a different customer is what will make you successful. And like, for example, if you're targeting high-end, rich people to sell a car, Rolls-Royce sell cars to a completely different profile than Lamborghini. And they're both high-end cars. They're both super expensive, reliable. 
everything you want, but they're not for the same people. Here in Portland, we have the Portland Timbers and the Portland Thorns, two professional teams, and the Thorns arguably one of the most successful female teams in, in, in women's soccer. They sell it to completely different. You go to the stadium when you play, when the Timbers play, uh, sold out, 25,000 people, chant more like jokes, uh, referee this, referee that. Uh, all the bars are selling beers because, and the target is 30 to 60 year old males. Then you go to the Thorn, and the chants are more, more like family friendly. The customers are mostly family with kids five to 15 years old. And all the bars, instead of selling beers, they're selling smoothies, they're selling sodas, they're selling the refreshments. And it works well. The Thorns have 15, 16,000 fans in the stadium. And it's because the Poland Timbers understood Timbers are, even though the, soccer, the football is the same, the experience is different. And because the experience is different, I need a different target market. I need a different fan that I will have for the Thorns. And that has worked very well for them and it will continue to work very well for them. So understanding that, like female soccer, female football, sometimes might be for the same people, most of the time might be for someone different. That the strong, hooligan, tifosi, hardcore <laughs> male fan that will watch a Champions League, male Champions League fan. I mean, what a perfect explanation and a perfect case study you just gave us. And and actually, the, the example of Portland, for me, one of in football is one of the, that stands out um, for both teams. Especially, I have to say this, I'm European, but of course I have to say this because it comes from the USA. And when, when you talk about USA, if you talk this in, in, in Europe and you know that everybody says, oh, this is, you, you treat it as a business and not as a club. What you said in the beginning is, is the loyalty, the sense of belonging that we, we praise a lot here in Europe. Of course, the bigger clubs, they are thinking on the, the business side, but the others, if they don't win it, it's, that's okay because it's the sense of belonging of the football um, team. But actually, we can look at to the other side and, for example, especially for women's football, the Portland example is the perfect example. I, I, I have to say, it, as you said, they have full stadium with everything and the way they, they, they treat it. We actually had Ma uh, Mark uh, Gollop, that he was our professor at the Football Business Academy, and he explained us everything very, very well. And I recommend everybody to read more about it, especially the, right now I forgot the name, but the, 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 the fans of the women's team, they have the, I think it's the Rose Riveteers or something like that. Mm -hmm. They are really good. When we talk about ultras, if we don't think ultras doesn't exist in women's football, you're wrong because they exist. <laughs> and you can go there and see, and see that is true. Um, but Sorry, Katia, before you jump to, to the other question, I just wanted to mention, I think this is the moment where clients and I mean, customers like us, we are so empowered right now. So we are demanding the best service and goods available and everything focused, I mean, really on human, like this, this sense of individuality. And we, in a way we have become lazy because we want everything to be so perfect, so attached to us. And that's, that, that's it, I mean, that's not going to change. I mean, and I think this has gone deepened during the pandemic. And for those companies who are not understanding this, they will definitely not be successful or they won't be able to compete. And clubs, they are companies. I mean, in a way, this is always tricky and always hard to discuss, especially with those football nostalgics 
really nostalgic fans like Katia in this case, but um, but that's the truth. I mean, that's something certain and that, that is not going to change. Yeah, thank you for calling me a whole soul. <laughs> I call myself a whole soul, but that's okay. <laughs> but now let's, let's go for to, to the other part of your professional uh, pathway. You work for Marbella Uni International University Center, uh, sports management university professor for the courses Introduction to Sports Management and Business of Football. And regarding to sports educational pathway, we know that we lack of female presence in these courses or in these fields, something that is changing now, fortunately. But can you tell us, were there many female students in your classes? What is the role of the academy in developing an inclusive industry? Um, in my intro to sports management, there were zero female students, uh, but in my business of football, half of them were female students. So I don't know why. I mean, I guess with registration that year worked out well that way. But um, yeah, that's that's the data. Uh, I would say we do need more female students. When I when I that's me as a professor, but me as a student, I can tell you that it was like no more than 33% of my MBA in sports management were were female students. Um, I think it's because I still, we still all think the sport is mostly a male sport and it's something that we have to change on every level. Like you are a six years old girl trying to play football and your coach is a male. Fine, our coach is female soccer here and it's not, not a big deal, but when your coach is a male person at age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, all the way into 18, and the president of your club is a male and the director of coaching is a male and all the scouts are male, you may think, uh, I don't know, this is a place for me. So I think representation, like everything in life, matters. And uh, what you see on TV, more female players, coaches, and, you know, presidents, like we have a, a lot more female presidents now that we ever had in, in football, which is great. Same thing with coaches. When you see that, then that tends you to be like, okay, I can work in the sport. Because right now I've been the and then the thing is that we all like to play sport, so playing is fine. It's kind of work it. Do I see when I'm seven, eight, nine years old? Do I see any female role model working in sport? Do I see any president on TV, female president, talking about signing? Like, do I see Mbappe signing for a new club next to a female president? I don't. Do I see even a top player like Alex Morgan moves to Europe? Do I see Alex Morgan next to a, a female president? Probably not. Do I see Alex Morgan next to a female coach? Probably no. And do myself when I play, do I have any professionals around me that are female? Probably no. So it's that thing in your head, like this is okay for me to play, which is I think we all understand now, like sports are male, female, whatever. Do we need to get that in terms of representation to send that message, indirect message that you can work in a sport, regardless of the gender? And um, we need to get that. That's why I still think it's hard for female students to sign for sports courses because it's hard to see a future in sport since you're little. Then when you're 22, 23, you finish college and you like sports, then you may try to find your own career in sports. But when you're 18, it's hard to make a decision of what to do for the rest of your life at the age of 18. And if you do not have that experience when you were little, it's really hard for you to be like, yeah, I can work in sports if you're a female player or interested in sports. Um, I think the second question was about the academy role. Back to representation. If you run a football academy, and again, it's not that male coaches cannot coach in female sport. I coach a female team myself, 
but that representation. We need to see more female coaches, female director of coaching, female persons, female registrars, female anything on both women and male side. Um, this year here in Portland is the first time ever that a high school team, and you know, high school in America is fairly big. Kids like to play high school sports and wear the high school logo and everything. This is the first time ever in Portland that a group of female coaches coach a male varsity team. Great. Again, that's that's how we need to be in the future. And it happens in 2021, arguably hundreds of years late, but hey, we get in there and that's what we need because the more we we provide that pathway for female coaches, the better we're going to promote female sports in general, not only to play, but to work in the future. Actually, uh, this reminds me of something, and this is just a, a fact for everyone to know, in terms of representation, for example, um, in Colombia, in the second, the first and the second division, there are like nearly 40 teams, 40 clubs, and there is only one president, one female president of a club. So that's it. I mean, what what what's the probability for you to get to this position right now? It's just nearly nearly zero, right? In a way, it's really really hard. It's out of, uh, I don't know this case, but it's probably luck. It's probably she's related to someone. I mean, unfortunately, of course, probably she's a hard worker. But at the end of the day, you just you start doing this kind of like. Kind of like guessing why she's there and why there are not more there and what what is everyone doing to to help that uh, to improve. But um, but there is a country and you were you are really connected to that, which is recognized after its fame in women's sport and football, and that's the United States. What do you think are the reasons behind this this successful in this success in women's sports in the U.S. That could be an hour podcast just on that. I would try to make it as short as possible. I would say reason number one, uh, cultural. Uh, America in 1950, 1960, boxing, American football, hockey, baseball, they were all very physical sports and they were all quote unquote male. You know, like that's the boys sport because it's very physical. So what are the non-physical sports? Gymnastics, track and field, volleyball, basketball. In this case, football, soccer. So because soccer or football has been a female sport forever in the United States, that's why the United States has 40, 50 years in advantage mentally. You know, like in Colombia, in Europe, anywhere South America or Europe, up to now, so football is still a quote-unquote male sport mentally. And you go to people that are 56 years old with very all school mentality, they will still talk to you about this is not for women. Hopefully, we are grateful that the young generation right now do not think that way. Well, I want to believe that the young generation right now, our generation or younger do not think that way, but still the old generation still have that thing back in their head like this is now a woman's sport. In the United States, not the other, it's the other way around. Football is a woman's sport. So that's why they have 50 years advantage with that. Second reason, and that's the most structural reason for it, in college sports, there is something called Title IX, which is a very long rule, hard to explain, but just to make it shorter, you have to give as many scholarships for male student athletes than for female student athletes and spend the same amount of money. So you give out one million in a scholarship divided in a thousand scholarships, you have to do the same thing, men and women. So what happened with all the college sports, the main sports in America, American football. 
So every college normally had an American football team because that's what brings revenue to the athletic department. American football team has 90 male players, 100 male players, which up to 65, they can be on a scholarship. So that 65 scholarship that you have to quote unquote compensate on the female side. So which sports are you gonna use? Okay, soccer is normally one of those options. How do I compensate the 65 scholarship plus men's basketball, plus men's soccer, plus men's any other sports that you have, you have to have the same number of them. So you need a, to give out a lot of women's scholarship in sports, in this case, soccer. So there are more than double women's soccer team in college sports than male sports. And why is that important? Because the physical part of our body, men, professional soccer players, especially at the age of 17, 18, your body, if it's not 100% already, is almost there. You will see Mbappe, Haaland, Jadon Sanchez, top teenagers, they're still teenagers, they're still 18, 19 years old, performing at the highest level. In the woman's side, physically, women's still growing, the body's still changing and growing until the age of 20, 21, 22. So when you are 18, 19 in South America, in Europe, and you don't make it to pro, you're not ready to play with 30-year-old women who are playing the national level, where do you go? Maybe second division, but is the second division really professionalized? Do you have good coaches? Do you have a good field? Do you have good competition? And if you're not ready for second division, where do you play? Is there a third division? In the men's side, we have first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, as many as you want. But in America, you're 18, you're still a teenager. You're not ready to compete against 30-year-old women, like Portland Pons, Christian Ciclair, 39 years old. She's still playing. Do you want to have an 18-year-old woman killing Mbappe playing versus a 30-year-old woman who already have two babies and their body is completely in a whole different level? Probably not. Some of them are ready. They are. Some of them are not. So the ones who are not ready physically yet, technically, they can be there mentally, they can be there, but physically, they still need a couple of years. The college route provides a really good economic situation because college sports in America is very expensive. So if college in America costs $40,000 a year, $50,000 a year, and you get a scholarship, that's $40,000 a year that you're saving. You're not making it, but you're saving it. So economic at the end it's opportunity cost, cost of the opportunity that you're saving the same money that you would spend anyway. So it's like you're making it. So you're saving that money. And at the same time, you're getting a high competition from the age of 18 to 22. And when you're 22 and your body is there now, now you move to pro. So of course, surely 50 years ahead, physically provides a better pathway. And then economically, if I'm not going to make money in professional soccer at the age of 18, because who does? Even even really good male players, only a few of them really make that much money at the age of 18. If I'm not going to make money here, I have a 40, 50K option that I'm saving to get a good education because I'm a really good football player. So all of that, just have more female players playing. Also, America is a huge country. So in numbers, we have a lot of female players in numbers, but we also have a good pathway for them with an economic and physical exempting and adaptation for them to perform at the pro level. So again, this could be a 45 to an hour minute conversation of why the US still ahead in women's sports, but just to make it shorter, that pathway, that economic incentive and that cultural advantage is what makes the US so good at women's sports, especially women's football. Just draw us the map of, <laughs> of the entire process. It's actually something that 
it comes up to discussion about women's sports is everybody's giving the example of USA, but not so only a few are, are available to explain everything as you said today, because usually the, the explain explanations the short explanation that, that we, we heard a lot and, and that's normal, that's, that's okay, is because of Title IX. And after that, <laughs> it's okay, but, but we understand that um, and it's actually one crucial point, um, but actually people still, they don't understand that, especially in Europe, how it can be possible, a sport that here has, is, has a century and, and over, over the, the other side of the Atlantic, they have a, a more developed, the sports more developed in the female, the female uh, uh, gender. Also, because here was uh, forbidden, and also South America. But let, let's not go <laughs> to that pathway. At least uh, women's football. But now let's talk about 2020 and and the pandemic and everything that that uh, this challenge year brought to us. Unfortunately, I I kept with Maria, but <laughs> probably next year <laughs> I'll get rid of her. No, I'm kidding. But. 2020 was a, a crucial year for, for all of us and calling for many cha changes in our life, personal and professionally. And a lot of us, we took, took it this year as an advantage um, to develop and to do something more. And for yourself, Jose Luis Campos, it was the, the chance to fulfill your chance of using football as a way to help the community. You were selected as program development manager for the Portland chapter of Street Soccer USA, an organization de dedicated to improving health, education, and employment outcomes for the most disadvantaged Americans by using sports. How has it been working for this role? And if you can add, how are the advantages of using football as a tool for global challenges? Oh, it's been amazing. Um... 2020, we had COVID hitting hard, and we also had the uh, BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, and society in the, in the United States was struggling. Up to a certain point, I come from a low-income background-ish in, in Spain, like my parents started doing very well when I was 13, 14, but before that, I was not. And I always said that I had the opportunities that I had because I had that mentality, ambition of going outside Spain, but at the same time, I have supporting parents. So it's like, okay, you want to go to England? Sure, go for it. Um, that sort of thing. So when I was here and BLM and COVID hit, I wanted to help. I really did, because something that you see in the United States is capitalism. So if you have ambition, you are smart, you have a lot of opportunities to work and to get rich. The problem is if you come from a low-income background, because college is so expensive, you don't have access to an education and you don't have access to education, how can you not work in a low in, in a minimum wage type of job? And you make minimum wage in the United States with private healthcare, private education, and private pretty much everything, you can really have a good, decent life. So I, I feel like uh, it's time to help and the opportunity arises and it's not something that I will do the rest of my life. I'm a very soccer person and I want to work in a professional soccer sport. But 2020, like everybody hit me uh, mentally, like what's going on in the world? How can I help? And also comes like I, I was in Nigeria just literally a year ago. So I also have that thing of, listen, we, we need to help. There's something We all have to do something to help. So 
yeah, I, the opportunity came. I, I took it obviously, and I love it every time since then. We have five programs. We work with the homeless community in the United States, in Portland, because unfortunately the U.S. have a huge homeless problem. Because that, again, there's a lot of people that are poor, and you're poor in the United States, you're very poor because there is no help, there is no social uh, services or assistance for anything. You, you're on your own, for good or bad. So you fall into the homeless world, it's really hard to get out of it. So we have a homeless program, we have a program for low-income families, we have a program for immigrants and refugees who cross the border, uh, minors who cross the border uh, without their parents, illegally, obviously. Um, we have a program for kids in juvie, juvenile um, centers like jails, and kids in rehab. So how to use soccer to help every single one of them. So for example, for the homeless community, let's, let's talk about these people. We're talking about people who live in the street by themselves with no schedule, with nobody who cares about them. And they're pretty much invisible. Nobody see them or they tend to ignore them. So when you tell them, hey, Mondays at 8 p.m., there will be always the same coach here for you. There's someone who cares about you and will always be there, rain, snows, doesn't matter. At 8 p.m., not 8.15, 8 p.m., you need a schedule too. 8 p.m., there will be a coach there for you who will care about you. Obviously, we also help them with social services. We help them with getting jobs. We provide food, shoes, things like that. But like the mental part, let's talk about the mental health. Just for someone having that structure, schedule in their life, someone who cares about them, and then being part of a team. Because anybody who has played football at the end of the day, you consider your, your teammates a family. Like if you spend enough time with them, you start relying on those people. Just the fact that I can rely on that person and that person relies on me and I have a job to do, which is score a goal or protect the goal, something for me to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm important. I'm responsible of stopping them from scoring or responsible to scoring the goals for my team. That for someone who is in the street, uh, it's just a huge mental improvement. For the low-income families, we talk about kids who live in a small apartment with 10 other family members, three families. So they don't get in a, in a COVID world right now where we all locked down. I'm, I'm in a comfortable apartment here, you know, beautiful in downtown Portland. But these people live in a small apartment with 10 families. I have my two kittens and my wife, that's it, comfortable. But they, they don't have anything. And living for them, leaving the house, play sports with their friends, it's just a huge, you know, like getting out of that house. And unfortunately, some of them come with sexual abuse trauma, physical trauma because it's fairly common, unfortunately, in those, in those demographic, in those economic situations. So again, using soccer to put them in a free uh, environment, inclusive, that everybody just gets to be a kid or be whoever you want to be and just enjoy kicking the ball around with a supervisor of a coach that cares about you and will always be there for you. Mentally, it's just a huge change. And for people who have pretty much everything even though we middle class things like that we do have everything friends family jobs we don't, we don't really appreciate it but for people who have nothing it's just a huge drastical change so i wanted to help i'm a soccer and a football person so if i can help in any way it will be through football so i found a way for me to be involved in something that i love to do for football and something that i felt like we should all be doing some some way somehow which is helping the people who need it the most. So yeah, very, very happy. It's great to wake up every morning and, and work towards help this community or any of those five communities. Yeah, amazing. This is great.
Also, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I will just go ahead and, and tell you something. We really need to have more professionals like yourself working for women's football. I mean, women's football and women in football, which is what we defend a lot in Toulouse podcast. Uh, just because of what you mentioned, I mean, we need an, an holistic perspective. I mean, we need people who are aware of the power of football as a huge industry, as the most watched sport in the world, because it's not only about thinking of the social responsibility or, I mean, corporate social responsibility as a company, but also in the sense that, I mean, it is still something that we can feel hope about. I mean, let's say, I mean, this can change uh, the pathway of someone. I mean, maybe they won't become a professional footballer or a professional coach, but they will be aware of the, of the opportunities around or the main skills of, I don't know, teamwork or leadership and, or the importance of inclusion. I mean, staying together with, with women and men, I mean, and trying to, to help each other to grow. I think this is really important. So, I mean, our last question from the program, I think we will ask you straight away. Would you, I mean, are you developing right now any projects focused on women's football? Um, have you enjoyed working for women's, women and women's football? I have, and I will always stay in the women's football sport. I currently coaching a female uh, soccer team, football team, and at the same time, part of my full-time job at Street Soccer USA, we have a program, which is Ladies First Initiative which is to promote women's soccer in, for women in low-income families. Again, because they come from backgrounds from Middle East, they're mostly refugees, so they come from backgrounds in Middle East, South America, where soccer is not a male sport. So we do training on their parents of why it is a women's sport. And at the same time, it's a program run, even though I'm in the shadows controlling it because I'm the director of the, of the chapter, it's run by a, by a woman. Everybody there are women's coaches and women's volunteers. So it's telling the girls like, what we're saying before, there is a, a career path for you. So that's why I stay to try to say the least involved, even though it is my program and I started and I'm the fine and the one who find the funds for it, I stay in the shadow and I don't show my face for anything. And no, it's not a house campus program at all. It's Abby is my, my coach. She runs it, she's great about it. So yeah, I will always work on promoting women's soccer and especially with low incomes, refugees, people who come from all over the world where they're not used to the United States and the United States 50 years ahead. These people who come here looking for a better life, they come with their own culture and their culture is like, wait a minute, this is not a woman's sport. Well, it is. First, it is. And definitely in the United States. So we work with the families to make them understand that. Um, in the future, I definitely see myself um, in the college level. I coach uh, male, uh, male coach, uh, college team and I'm sure I will move to a woman's side fairly soon. So yeah, you will always see me in some way, somehow involved with women's soccer, football, for sure. I say soccer all the time now after three years in the US and I try not to because in Spain or England, they will hate, they hate that word. Um, but yeah, women's football, some way, somehow. We are always struggling with this word here too. <laughs> One says football, other say soccer. But it's it's a, a same thing, a men's and women's football. It's not the men's gender uh, thing, it's not a word thing. It's the same game, so it's done. <laughs> it's only that. And we hope to, to hear from you uh, in the future. And actually this interview or this conversation uh, came to an end, but but was like what you started in the beginning saying adaptability and, and being connected with the others and learn from other cultures. It perfect, perfectly connects with everything that you said also at the end. 
um, right now. But, so, Jose, we have to thank you. And what a class we had here today, a free class. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a great one hour class. And uh, we hope that it was for us and we hope also for our audience too and that they can take some acknowledgements from here because you shared, you shared a lot uh, of valuable knowledge to, for all of us, really. So thank you for taking the time and being here with us. And we need to thank also to LWF for presenting us to, to men like yourself who are committed to the development and promotion of the game. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thanks to both of you for doing a podcast like this. People need it. And here to all of you and more female and male presenters. And good luck. I'm sure it's going to go great. And keep doing it. Really, really keep doing it. We need it. And thanks for having me. Thank you, Jose. And to all of you listening to us, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Follow us on social media uh, on Twitter and Instagram with the name Two Goals Podcast. Now you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook. So thank you and take care.